0: Accessing Library Computer Data.
1: Out there, there are no saints. Just...
2: everybody it was kind of a goofy entrance but anyway we're here to talk about our continuing coverage of star trek deep space nine right now we're up to the episode called our man bashir it is the 10th episode of the fourth season aired on november 27th 1995 teleplay goes to ron d moore story credit goes to bob gillen directed by weinrich colby in this episode a transporter accident replaces the characters in bashir's secret agent holosuite program with the physical forms of the station's senior staff clay
1: how are you I'm good. I'm really excited that we finally got to witness Avery Brooks's final form as uh, as I'm sure he was constipated for days after chewing so much scenery. But this is my favorite Avery Brooks performance. Like this is like, this is clearly what he wants to do all the time.
2: I, I have a note
1: that I want to talk about uh,
2: here. Remind me if I don't say it, say Wes, talk about your note. But uh, we're also joined by Darren. Darren, welcome back to the podcast. How are you?
0: I'm good as well. Uh, yes, I'm very, very much looking
2: forward to this. You had requested this episode. Um, Oh, yes. Your recent Twitter feed, you were tweeting about it. Uh, You had a lot of Hot take, hyperbole about the episode? Maybe not. Oh. Maybe not hyperbole. None of
0: it. It's, none of it's hyperbole. It's all fact.
2: It's uh, all true. Well, before we'll I'll, we'll take a break. <laughs> I'm going to uh, play an audio clip. We're going to come back. We'll see if Clay disagrees right off the bat, and otherwise, we'll see uh, if I have to play the naysayer about this whole episode. But anyway, we're going to take a break. Going to play an audio clip. We'll come back with Darren and Clay. We're going to break down our man Bashir. Julian, I
1: must have fallen
2: asleep. Very funny. Who else did you invite along with you today? Well, this wasn't my idea, Major.
0: Colonel, actually.
1: Colonel Anastasia Komonanov, KGP. Oh, Julian. I never thought I'd see you live again. Not after you fell out of that dirigible over Iceland. I had a parachute, and there
2: was a submarine there waiting for me. But how did you know about that? Have you been downloading my Holosuite program?
1: Oh,
0: Julian, you are not well. Let's lie
1: down.
2: I must say, Major Kira's certainly throwing herself into the role, Doctor. All right, we're back. Clay, Armand Bashir, you were you you had kind of a, a, a weird tone to your voice when I told you we had a, a holodeck episode featuring Bashir coming up. You kind of said like, oh, oh, that was your tone of voice. So do you want to describe what you were thinking?
1: <laughs> and did this episode live up to it? The same tone of voice I use when I check the contents of the sandwich that i ordered <laughs> three days ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know, no, I, I think it's generally like Bashir is not my favorite character on the show. Um, I don't know if that's just because he's not featured as much. So he's fallen into the crevice of people I don't look forward to seeing. But I, every, I, I, I usually end up every episode I see with him is he's usually pretty good. And I I actually did really enjoy this episode. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I I found it's interesting that they've uh, had so many episodes that are just sort of like fun side quests. Um, given how serialized they've gotten, and it's like the, the standalone episodes are more uh, side questy and fun than they usually are. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, it, it's it's a Good. It's a holodeck episode with stakes that affect everybody, which is nice, and it's not just like I forgot the keys to the door. Um, the, the machine didn't break down in this episode. Interesting. Yeah, it didn't it didn't come to life. Yep. Uh, it's it's actually a. Uh, uh, it it made me start thinking about like, well, if are are when you're transported, are you? Is it really you who comes out on the other side or is it just like a synth- synthesis of yourself? It, it, that wasn't the point of the episode, but I was thinking about that because they were talking about oh and I also um, I also like to see that even far in the future, people still have uh, RAM problems.
2: Of course. We're, as far as technology goes, you're always going to need a bigger uh, operating system or Skype channel, I suppose on the other end. Darren mm-hmm. you were talking a big game about this one. Do you want to do your general thoughts introduction?
0: Okay, Our man Bashir is an unqualified and underrated masterpiece of Star Trek. It is one of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine. It's one of the best scripts that Ronald D. Moore ever wrote. It's one of the best scores that Jay Shataway ever composed. It's one of the best, it's probably the best holodeck or holosuite episode in the franchise. It's one of the best comedies in the franchise. And it's just a delight from beginning to end. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've sort of laid out my my, my ground there a little uh, over ambitiously, but I, I think it, it is. It's an episode that really sort of testifies to the strength of the fourth season. Like it's worth noting, Clay pointed out that he he felt a sense of dread when he heard that he was going to get both a holodeck episode and a Bashir episode in in one sort of in one fell swoop. And I mean, you know, you sort of you, you damn played it. You're very nice to Bashir. You're like, you know, maybe it's because he's not featured that much. But if we're being entirely honest, like the Bashir episodes of the first three seasons include Passenger. Uh, which is the one where Bashir becomes a serial killer? Malora, which is the one in which Bashir learns a very important lesson about creeping on women with disabilities. Distant Voices, in which Bashir learns a very important lesson about not supplying drugs to people who want to buy drugs off him. Um, so Bashir, you know, doesn't necessarily have up until in the first three seasons, the Bashir episodes aren't consistently great. And the ones that are great tend to be the ones that involve Garrick, and they tend to be the exception rather than the rule. I think the wire in the second season. What's interesting about the fourth season, and this is one of those like firing on all cylinders sort of things, is that they have three Bashir episodes in them. They have the Hippocratic Oath which with O'Brien, which comes right after The Visitor, and I think is somewhat underrated because of that, because it's not a masterpiece of television following a masterpiece of television. There's this, and later on in the season, there's the quickening. And there's a real sense like, the fourth season of Deep Space Nine is the show figuring out exactly what it's doing and a testament to that is that it figures out what it's doing with Bashir, who has been one of the biggest problem characters along with Jadzia Dax for the first three years of the show. And it finally figures out exactly what it wants to do with him and exactly the stories that it wants to tell with him. And I don't know how much depth you want me to go into it here, but I think that our man Bashir, like, it looks fluffy, it looks playful, and it is. It's very funny. It's a wonderful, like, showcase of Star Trek production design. But in terms of story and narrative and character work it's a story that understands entirely like the appeal of both Deep Space Nine of Star Trek as a whole and of Bashir as a character in the context of what Deep Space Nine is doing and I think that's a fantastic accomplishment in general and I think that as Clay pointed out it's a particularly impressive accomplishment in what is a trivial side quest episode because nobody who isn't me is going to ever say our man Bashir is like the most important episode of Deep Space Nine ever but even when it's not It's doing so many of these small things incredibly, perfectly well, I would argue. Now,
1: I have two things to say. One, if the episode called The Quickening doesn't feature a sword fight and some sort of vague mystical prize at the end, I'm not interested. And two, (laughs) be careful what you say here, Wes, because your opinion uh, really determines whether or not you get to talk about the Royale in the future.
2: So (laughs) that's a good point. Although, Darren, I noticed you had said the Royale was one of your favorite Star Trek episodes. So it might be just a um, a tag team effort here against Clay, who
0: doesn't like the Royale as much.
2: (laughs) But I I think I'll start this by... But when
0: this train comes in, everybody rides, Clay. (laughs) Clay, I'll... I'll walk. Thank you. I'll
2: ask you... Here here's my I, I can't put up much of a this is going to be a very boring podcast if I don't push back a little bit. Um the only <laughs> the only pushback I can really have is that Darren on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being James Bond himself, how much of a fan of James Bond are you?
0: I'm probably like an 8.5 if not a 9. Clay? Um 7 Okay,
2: I'm the low end here. I'd be like a three, probably, in the James Bondy secret agent world. My main problem with Arman Bashir, and you guys can push back against this since you like it quite a bit, and I like it too, but the main thing is I think that it's one of those weird episodes where the homage is obvious, yet I walk away thinking they could have done so much more. And I don't really know why I feel that about this way. I really like the last half of this episode I think the first half is takes a very long time for it to actually get into gear and get going Mm. they talk about the what's going on for a very very long time Um, and I feel like while I appreciate the tech on a technical level all the bond and secret agent it's not just bond that they're referencing here but he's the main target Um, I I feel like it's all very I'm technically impressed by it but it's the kind of thing where as I'm not a huge fan of bond material in the first place I kind of walk away going that was fun but it didn't really impact me on any way. It's not like if they set up like a Holodeck Seinfeld episode, I would have been all over that shit, but we end up with a James <laughs> Bond thing here. So, Clay, wh- why do you think I'm wrong about
1: that? Um, well, I, I, I would agree that I think it probably takes a, takes a little bit too long to get going. They spend, they spend too much time in, in the Paris house, I think. Um, is that the one the s- where Kira shows up? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, why is it always Kira who ends up getting all sexed up? It's always her. It's it, it, it never seems to be anybody else. When are we going to see Wharf in just a loincloth?
0: <laughs> um, Actually, funny you should, we, you should ask that. I think there's an episode coming up that will uh, deliver what you want, Clay. Excellent. It's the only thing that I want.
1: Golden uh,
0: Speedo. And uh, the scene with, I think, of
1: all the scenes with all the characters and their new uh, versions, I think the Wharf one is probably the weakest. Although it does, it does have that nice line about, you know, where's where's my five million dollars? And he says oh, that's right in front of you, and implying that he's going to beat him in in baccarat. I think. Yeah, baccarat. Uh, that's yeah. a nice line. But like, uh, he gets the least amount of stuff to do, uh, and doesn't really get to play a character. He's just sort of wharf with a suit on. Clay. He does so much business with that goddamn
2: cigar. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> porn movie that you're watching while he's working that thing.
1: <laughs> well, you got to keep it interesting somehow. Um, and uh, yeah. shit, what was I gonna say? Um, I think it's, I think it's falls in the same subset for me as like a, a, a mirror universe episode, but I find this to be more successful. Um, in that year, they're letting the characters, they're letting the actors play different characters, and you know it's kind of fun to watch because you're so used to them as X, and now they get to do Y, even though. Dax is basically just Dax, and Worf is basically just Worf. But Kira gets to stretch her legs a bit. Avery Brooks Brooks gets to, you know, play the role of he's been waiting to play his entire life. (laughs) He's playing the role
2: Um, that they thought he was being cast for, I think. Yeah. Like, so I'll bring up my point now. Avery Brooks is a bizarre casting for DS9. Because it seems like the characters he wants to play are high energy, and Cisco is not high energy it's yeah. like it's such a weird casting it's like it's not his natural state of being to be this buttoned up uh commander of a space station role he is the yelping spastic sort of semi-dancing person that he wants to be and it's weird so darren i'll throw it to you off of clay's point but how, how would you sort of react to the uh, the point about being a bond fan and enjoying this and where you think uh, we can go into the characters after that too
0: so just on a general sense, in in terms of this being a movie about the Bond, or an episode about the Bond franchise, and it's worth noting that this was released in November 1995, which was the same month that GoldenEye was released, and GoldenEye is a wonderfully underrated Bond film. It's the one that gave us Pierce Brosnan, arguably Pierce Brosnan's only good Bond film, but it was the Bond Correct. film that was kind of tasked with reintroducing Bond after the Cold War and figuring out how to make a Bond movie uh, after the Cold War, after the character seemed sort of redundant and out of date. Before did you it? That's yeah, how. that's it, exactly. Off a dam in yep. um, a grey and depressing Soviet environment. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of like, that was the context of this. And one of the things I really, really like about Armand Bashir, and it was sort of like, well, it, it kind of gets to something about Deep Space Nine that I really, really like about Deep Space Nine as well, is that like, obviously... It's packed full of all sorts of references and and homages and sort of like nods to all these detailed, like all these little jokes to little Bond movies that people will recognise. You know, there's Baccarat from Casino Royale, for example. The rotating bed is obviously the bed, meant to be the bed from like, you only live twice except the production team didn't have the budget to have her just drop out of the wall. There's also discussions like The Spy Who Loved Me, where he's like, he jumped out, he had a parachute and landed in a submarine. I like to imagine Bashir with a Union Jack parachute. But there's also even like little things like the Nehru jacket that um, the villains wearing that Dr. Noah is wearing, which is obviously a nod to the, the iconic costume of Blofeld, which even popped up in Spectre. There's things like the, the control board, the Himalayas, the plan to annihilate mankind, which is a very Roger Moore Bond movie villain from, like, The Spy Who Love Me, but also from Moonraker. But on top of, like, ignoring all of that and the fantastic, like, 60s production design and the fantastic soundtrack... What the episode does that I really like is it kind of touches on what the appeal of Bond is as a film franchise. And in particular, what the appeal of it is as a movie franchise about a spy. And it happens with Garrick. And it's kind of interesting because, in a way, like a lot of Deep Space Nine, this has aged very, very well. Because it seems to preempt some of the discussions that the Bond franchise has had itself. So, like, when Daniel Craig showed up all of a sudden Bond wasn't the guy in a tuxedo drinking martinis shaken not stirred because how else do you drink martinis? He was all of a sudden this rough and ready, bruised, emotionally scarred guy who, you know, would would pummel a dude in a toilet. Um, And it's sort of like you stripped out the romance of Bond because that's what people thought they wanted from a post-Cold War Bond, from like a post-90s Bond. They wanted somebody who was brutal, somebody who was horrific and somebody who made really dark and tough moral choices because they absolutely had to be made. And one of the things that I like about Arman Bashir, and it's very similar to what, have you guys seen Mission Impossible Fallout earlier this summer? Yes.
2: Clay has, I have not, yeah.
0: Okay, well, without getting too specific in terms of plot, in terms of theme, one of the things I like about the Macquarie uh, Mission Impossible films is that they very much try to position Mission Impossible as distinct from Jason Bourne and as distinct from the Daniel Craig Bond films. And they do this by embracing a very romantic view of of spycraft, because they're not really movies about spycraft. They're not really about espionage. Nobody really believes that the United States government conducts its espionage in the style of Tom Cruise riding a motorbike backwards around a roundabout. Um, It's more in the style of, like, these are the action movie fantasies that we like to have and the idea that these are stories and these are particularly interesting to us as stories and like there's a lot of that in our man Bashir like for example Bashir mentions that he has to be at work in two hours yet somehow in the holodeck he's able to get from Paris to Hong Kong without having to take a flight in real time which makes you wonder how it works but it's moving by story logic there's a wonderful bit at the end where Dr. Noah who is like he's finally got the upper hand he's pointing a gun at Bashir The, the holodeck program's about to end he goes over to push the button and fulfill his dream and have the one thing that he's wanted to do all this time. And he ha- he ha- hovers his hand over and he can't actually do it because the story won't let him do it. Mm. And even at the end, when Bashir pushes it, he says, I didn't expect to win. And he didn't expect to win, not because he's a character who wanted to conquer the world, but because he's a villain in a Bond movie and villains in Bond movies don't get to win. But there's this discussion that happens throughout Armand Bashir with between Garrick and between Bashir, which is a wonderful dynamic. And I think... it. it we'll talk a little bit about how it reflects Deep Space Nine later on, but it it talks a lot about fiction in general. And there's this idea... That happens at the climax of the episode. And you're right, the second half of the episode is much, much stronger than the first half. And the second half is so strong because of that dynamic between Bashir and Garrick, where Garrick is like, look, this little fantasy that you're playing at, this little role play of this globe trotting, like super wealthy dilettante who travels around the world and seduces beautiful women while living in expensive buildings at the, you know, at the taxpayers' sort of expense, that's a fantasy. That's not what a real spy does. A real spy murders people in the the dark a real spy throws people under the bus if it serves their interests a real spy understands that you have to take measures and you have to have sa- be willing to make sacrifices and you have to be willing to like to make ex- take accept acceptable losses and yeah. bashir's the real spy response runs away, to,
2: basically is yeah that, really, yeah,
0: yeah. like it's a, it's a brute basically he's not a romantic figure uh, and and bashir's response to that is to say screw you and to say i can actually do all this impossible stuff i can beat the odds i can do something that's completely unrealistic so they completely reject your cynicism of I have to let them die, or I have to save myself. I can reject that because I'm inside a story and stories exist to allow us to be wonderful and to be our best selves and to be optimistic and utopian and hopeful. And I really, really like that about Armand Bashir because it's basically, it's a homage to the fantasy of Bond, to the idea of like constructing a story where a spy isn't somebody who does something horrible in a dark alley and tries not to get caught, but instead there's a fancy jet setting life where he can save everybody else the planet because he's a decent person or save everybody who's important to him because he's a decent person and that's what I really really like about it and that's why I think it's aged really well as a a commentary on the Bond franchise.
1: I do also really like that Garrick basically voices everything I've said previously about uh, people with professions in most stories and movies where they're not very good at their job like James Bond is a terrible spy in real life and I, I got a kick out of hearing Garrick actually voice that
2: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a I mean, it's it's a clash of Garrick's realism against uh, Bashir's fantasy stuff. And right. it is kind of it's as Darren is saying, it's like the smashing those two together allows Bashir to have a fantasy of a fantasy character. And, you know, how Bond has changed from the ideally or idealized like Cold War warrior, where it was clearly fighting against communism. The sort of the battle lines were clear to Craig's. Bond, which came about in the age of uh, more Islamic terror and everything like that, and is a little bit more shades of gray, a little bit more brute force, I guess, less romantic. Um, still having sex, just not romantic sex,
0: um. <laughs> <laughs> not healthy sex, like, yeah, like like really angry sex. Shoot the woman afterwards and waste the scotch sex.
2: <laughs> so I think that the the Bashir thing, and I'll ask you, Clay. Like so what how how much darren obviously has uh is very interested in the sort of the the theme of it how much of that did you come across in the episode and how much did you see it just as a bond homage because i kind of split the difference i actually feel that they could have done a little bit more with the thematic take of it but i feel the episode teeters a little bit towards the light-hearted side and i don't think that's a problem but i think it actually could have been deepened a little bit with what they were talking about with the garrick stuff and everything but what would you think
1: yeah, I, you know, I, I just thought I thought it was a nice way to uh, uh, play in that world and invert a lot of the expectations of, uh, of how those stories play out. Like at Darren mentioned at the end where uh, uh, Cisco or Dr. Noah, is that his name? Noah. Yeah, Dr. Noah. Oh, that's cute. I don't think I caught that the first time. Which is, um, a, I
2: think that's my favorite reference. It's Dr. No, and
1: he's trying to flood the world. So it's Noah biblically, which makes a yeah, lot of sense. I think yeah. that's great. Uh, you know him not expecting to win and then Bashir turning the tables and winning by killing everybody I thought was fun. <laughs> uh, and you know yeah the Garrick Garrick stuff allows them to kind of make some comments on on how silly these stories are but you know Bashir then gets to talk about why they're so engaging and and I I, I really I enjoyed it it's it's an odd it's an odd thing to choose for Star Trek. It's like, it's, 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 it's not, it's, it's a, it's a, it's strange to me that they took an episode just so they could kind of like muse about James Bond for a while. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> like if I, they did an I episode, have, oh, what's that? I was going to raise my hand there, but you can oh. do that. <laughs> <place, sorry. laughs> like if it's, it's
1: as weird to me as if they decided to do a, uh, uh, and well, I guess they've kind of done it in the past where they've done the Sherlock Holmes episodes and stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's like if they decided to do an episode where they just decided to talk about the tropes of uh, vampire fiction for well, 40 talk, minutes. T-
2: talk about that
1: <laughs> for a second. TNG chose Sherlock
2: Holmes as an inspiration for the holodeck, basically, right? He's the one that springs to mind for Data. Yep. DS9 chose James Bond. And I think that's kind of an interesting choice. It's, it's an interesting distinction between the series. We always talk about that. But I think that Sherlock Holmes fits TNG more than... Bond fits DS9, although if you guys can convince me that Bond fits DS9 in a better way than Sherlock Holmes fits the uh, mechanical, unemotional
1: side of TNG, then I'm all ears. (laughs) Well, I I would argue that Sherlock Holmes fits TNG, but more specifically, it fits Data. And James Bond might not fit Deep Space Nine, but it specifically fits Bashir. So if it had been anybody else in this episode, I don't think it would have worked, but Bashir definitely has... That sort of, um, why do, like you th- yeah, why do you think that it doesn't? I mean, just the the way the way he is, he's he's I mean, he's not a womanizer, but he's clearly a horn dog, yeah. And uh, he's tries to keep it classy, but also is you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that this would be a fantasy of his, let's put it that way. Um, and if this had been a James Bond spoof where O'Brien was doing a James Bond thing, that would feel really weird. Uh, but I think it's just appropriate given I don't know if they. Sw- I don't know if they said let's do a James Bond thing and well who should we use oh I guess Bashir makes sense or if they said let's do a Bashir Holodeck episode oh Bashir we should have him do a James Bond you know I don't know I don't know which you know chicken and the egg situation here but uh, I think character wise I think it fits Bashir very well Darren did you want to go off of that
0: I I kind of just a couple of things on that because I mean I think actually it's kind of interesting I would argue that. Um, Bond fits very well with the sort of milieu of what Deep Space Nine does and the interest that Deep Space Nine has, in that Deep Space Nine has a lot of interest towards like mid 20th century popular culture. I think that like TNG has a much more classical sensibility, as you point out, with James Bond, but also with like Westerns and stuff like that, with uh, Sherlock Holmes, but also with Westerns and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, Voyager, when it gets invested, it's invested in like Pulp Fiction from the 30s through the 50s with like Captain Proton, but also like communist scares and stuff like like that. Whereas Deep Space Nine's interests repeatedly lie in sort of like the golden age of Hollywood. So we're talking or even like going into new Hollywood. So think, for example, how many episodes of Deep Space Nine have been based off classic movies like, for example, Profit and Loss based around Casablanca, Uh, Mirrodin based around Brigadoon to pick another example, Fascination based around the 1932 version of it's a Midsummer Night's Dream, for example. Yeah. And
1: let's not forget forget Duet, which is based on on the jazz singer
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's true though bear ira bear is yeah. you know he would be my father of the star trek showrunners he's interested in things that are just before my time you know like i yeah. i as a non-cinephile i'm sort of unfamiliar with a lot of the references that ds9 does so i guess that's it, you can continue there. but it is like ds9 is very interested in early golden era movies
0: it's it's worth noting, like that, for example, Bear later on in the like in the in this season hires two writers based solely on the fact that they wrote a book about Sam Peckinpah. Like that's the kind of yeah no you know their names off off the top of your head. Uh, David Weddle and Bradley Thompson uh, oh, okay. for Rules of Engagement, um, and they later become staff writers um, in, in something that I have very strong opinions about, but we're not going to get into that right now. That's, but that's why, the,
1: a- uh, that's why the, the slow motion squib shots go up in the fifth <laughs> and sixth season. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, just by sheer volume. But I mean, like Bear also, even later on, it's telling that when he uses the hollow suite, for example, he uses it to depict like mid 20th century American pastimes like Vegas or even like the, the baseball games, for example. Like, I mean, Bear's one of Bear's first uh, things when he sat down with uh, Michael Piller about being brought in to work on Deep Space Nine was, I want to bring back baseball. Um, Into the 24th century. And that was sort of a part of like uh, what he wanted to do with the show. So I think, I think Bond sort of fits roughly with that within that context. But I think it also, Arman Bashir. For me, and maybe again, this is something where I'm probably reading far, far too much into the episode. But it also works rather well for me as a Star Trek episode, as a story exploring, like, how we tell stories, in particular, how we tell Star Trek stories. Because obviously, like, you've got a number of parallels between the Bond franchise and Star Trek in that they both began sort of in the 60s. They both, like, in their early days had a certain horn dog sensibility that's been maybe toned down a little bit. And they've sort of gone through various iterations and they changed to reflect the society, uh, you know, around them and they've been reinvented and you could argue that like Armand Bashir arrives at a time where Star Trek is reinventing itself with like the Way of the Warrior at the same time that Bond is reinventing itself with Goldeneye. But there's this interesting thing within Deep Space Nine where a lot of people tend to comment upon Deep Space Nine as an inherently cynical uh, show, as a show that is deconstructionist, that is very, that adopts a very cynical outlook towards Roddenberry's idealism. And this kind of ties back into the use of Bashir in this episode. I think, Clay, you're entirely right that, like, this is an episode that I can't imagine working with anybody but Bashir. Bashir... Is despite the fact that it takes him nearly four years to get a good episode, with the exception of the Wire, probably one of my favorite episodes and uh, my favorite characters on Deep Space Nine, because he's basically a Roddenberryan protagonist um, on the show in that he's he's a character who embodies that TNG sensibility. Um, in terms of he's the most idealistic. He's the most overperforming. He's the one character in the cast who's when he's introduced doesn't really have a big issue or a reason to be there. He's just there because he's overperforming. He's there because he's the guy who you could, you could easily swap Bashir out with any other character on Voyager or Next Generation when you're starting it. And you wouldn't think anything was wrong whatsoever. Whereas Cisco is like damaged coming off like the loss of his wife, for example. Kira is a former terrorist. Odo used to work for a fascist bunch of enforcers. Quark is like a greedy capitalist. O'Brien is like this working class individual. And so like Bashir is like the most pure Star Trekian character on Deep Space Nine. And it happens repeatedly over the early seasons. Like it's repeatedly suggested the characters on Deep Space Nine can't stand Bashir because he's very much like a first season character from the next generation. He's all talky, idealistic. He's sort of like projecting himself outwards. He's talking like he knows what he's talking about. And he's sort of asserting his view of how the universe is. And there's a point where, like, I think it's it's battle lines, which is not a great episode, but it has a really great moment where, like, Cisco's like, "Okay, these people are suffering horribly. We need to get them off this planet." And Bashir's like, "Yes, but have you thought about the Prime Directive?" And Bashir, Cisco just literally pushes him up against the runabout and says, "Shut the hell up!" Like, this, not this is not show. that kind of story. Yeah, not not on this show, thank you very much. But like what's interesting is that despite the fact that Bashir is presented as naive and hopeful and there's a sense that in some ways presenting him as like the hopeless geek and the little horn dog in the style of Gene Roddenberry himself and as a little nerdy and awkward, is like the show thumbing its nose at at the next generation just a little bit. It's also very clear that the writers and Deep Space Nine as a whole absolutely love Bashir because like if you look at the stories that centre on Bashir and particularly like that focus on his naivety and his innocence, his optimism and his utopianism. Bashir is always right. You guys have already watched in this season, Hippocratic Oath, is, which is the episode where O'Brien and Bashir are captured by the Jemadar. And basically, Bashir's like, this is horrible. These people are being kept as slaves. We have to free them. And O'Brien's like, you can't free them. They're animals. They'll kill animals everything in their path. Them being on a leash is a really good thing. And that's... O'Brien's position in that episode is the very cynical, grounded, realistic one. But at the end of the episode, Bashir is proven correct because the Jem'Hadar, who is not addicted to white, sacrifices his own life in order to protect Bashir and O'Brien and get them off there. So Bashir gets the luxury of being entirely correct. And it happens repeatedly with the Bashir episode as you go on. And in this episode in particular, you have... This conflict, it's almost a reflection of The Wire, which was another episode focusing on Garrick and Bashir in the second season, where Garrick is suffering and he's addicted to this implant and Garrick's big arc in in The Wire is, I'm a horrible person. I deserve to suffer. I deserve to die. Nobody can love me. And if this person who's trying to help me, who thinks that he can come in and fix me and make things better, what I'm going to do is I'm going to push him away. I'm going to push him away by showing him how horrible I am. All the terrible things that I've done, whether they're real or not, because I don't deserve his compassion and I don't deserve his love. And I deserve to be left in a hole rotten and dying. And Bashir finds it within himself to forgive Garrick for all the horrible stories that he tells and to to go out and to put himself in danger to help Garrick and he does in the end help Garrick and here you have that inverted Where Bashir is in a situation where he's technically out of his depth and Garrick is the guy with the expertise who should be coming in and help. And Garrick's like, well, look, I actually know what it's like to be a spy. You should listen to me. You should, like, cut your losses. You should just walk away. You should, you know, basically you have to make a tough choice. And Bashir's like, I simply refuse to make that tough choice, and the episode proves him entirely correct. Like it's worth noting that to be fair, though, points, he does—he okay. does
1: kill the entire planet. He does. <laughs>
0: That's a fair point, Clay. Um, I'm going to choose to ignore that. Um, But no, it it, it is a fair point, but they are all holograms as opposed to like... The central point of of the narrative is that Bashir at one point points out, and I think it's a very clever, very canny reference that like doesn't get enough credit. It's the point where he says like, if this program ends like all the other ones, the computer is going to kill either Dax or Kira and I'm going to end up with one of them and the other one's going to be dead and forgotten about and I'm never going to mention her again because that's how James Bond movies work. And the episode basically says Says, well, what if Bashir could try and break this story and make it work better? And I, I really like that about it. I think it works remarkably well.
1: You know, and as far as why James Bond and does it fit or does it not, I would I would say that it it arguably does fit. Maybe not in style, but in uh the context of the characters and what's going on. Because if you look at if you look at what's happening in Deep Space Nine, it's 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 very Cold War adjacent. It has the same kind of feel of... They know, are in a Cold War right now. Yeah, they are in a Cold yeah. War. And yeah. you've got lots of different cultures who are uh, n- n- untrustworthy. And you're always kind of like looking beh- you know, looking over your shoulder and everything. And all of the, f- the, the throwbacks that they do, at least the ones that I'm aware of right now, you've got James Bond, you've got uh, Roswell, and you've got... Uh, they literally go back to the 60s Star Trek eventually... And those are all, I think, tonally consistent as far as the uh, environment and the uh, kind of political things that are going on at the time. So I I feel like it is I think I feel like it fits better than than you might think
2: so that's kind of an interesting point i never thought up they they don't bring the dominion into this and the dominion would be the main sort of thing as the cold war antagonist although i understand what you're saying is that the whole universe in ds9's prism is kind of a cold war with everybody
1: um well yeah but you know just like the, the 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 lens of the show is very much a cold war lens you know yes paranoia is the kind of the name of the yeah, game I mean, and not, the, not knowing got... what people are doing Yeah, you've got that stuff going on with the Cardassians. I mean, even I'm actually kind of surprised that there isn't a point where Garrick is kind of like, you know, I actually really enjoy this. This is very, uh, this is very recognizable to me, the way that these people are acting with each other.
2: He's very, Garrick is, uh, not to derail, but Garrick is obsessed with the decor of this era. He (laughs) mentions it multiple times that he doesn't like the color code and he doesn't like the way things are laid out. I thought it was actually one of the best looking 60s sets um, it was like a, a good 60s is how I would describe <laughs> it, it
1: actually uh I mean this is probably just my own bias but the his place in Paris for a quick second I thought was based on um a danger set man, from, right from danger man yeah yeah I remember that episode uh, yeah I, I don't know if it is. I probably isn't it's probably just like generic 60s decor but you know
2: no prisoner references in this episode Clay I don't think nah it's too cool
1: for Star Trek it
2: probably well Bear was wearing that I am number six t-shirt that's true he was it's in
1: his head Um, no reference to too bad there wasn't a reference to like a giant white ball or something.
2: So, <laughs> so yeah, it would be a giant white line in uh, this. Or maybe that's a little bit early for Bond, actually. And Bond never. Or if somebody
1: it. asked Bashir if he was Polish, and he'd be like, "Why would I be Polish?" <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> you told me there would be no checks here. <laughs> um, so, let's see. I want to talk about Bashir. Uh, we've sort of done that. I think that a good place to kind of go off here, maybe, would be the uh, the character work because. Uh, you guys are sort or maybe Clay or one of you was saying that you were kind of uh, sort of ranking the cast. I think the cast is either knocking it out of the park here or they are doing what they are best at. And I say that in Dax's direction more. <laughs> that, that, that sounds negative, but they, they cast, they put her in a role that is like what she's sort of built for. But um, Avery Brooks was born to play a maniacal insane Bond villain. He loves I, it. I am cherishes shocked. it.
1: Having having no real experience with him as an actor outside of this show, I am shocked that someone didn't you know sweep him up to do something like this somewhere else afterwards because he's really good at it. Like I mean, he's he probably needs a little bit of dialing down just a bit, but I mean, if if they came out with a bond if the if Bond twenty five or whatever came comes out and Avery Brooks is the villain, I'd be like fucking yeah, I'm, I'm there for that. It'd be um, it just Elba versus Abraham Brooks. Yeah, um, now
2: we're talking. So yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about Brooks. The the I would rank the performances basically. Dex and O'Brien are kind of at the bottom. O'Brien doesn't have a lot to do. He's just the henchman goon. Um, Kira is good. Kira is more of a Rocky and Bullwinkle parody than anything yes. else.
1: I, you know, as you were as you were saying, sorry to interrupt, but as you were saying about, you know, they gave Dax something to do that they know she could do. I, that kind of explains the why is Kira always the one being sexed that's up? like it. yeah. because yeah. it's like if you try if you put Dax in the Kira position, it's like oof, I don't know how that's gonna go. I don't know if she's got the chops to pull that off. Nothing, yeah. nothing against Terry Farrell as an actor, but uh, you know,
2: yes, here we are. No, I I completely understand, and I mean the. The lead ones for me are Bashir, Cisco, and I actually enjoyed Wharf. I thought Wharf fit the What's the name of the the henchman from Casino Royale, Le Chiffre or oh, something Le Chief, like that? yes, yeah. Le Chief. Uh, he Le he's Chief. kind of playing that role, I think. And Yeah,
1: he's he's not doing his character is not meant to do anything flashy. Um and he, in in that character, he does that well cuz I mean that's kind of what he does. So I mean, it's it's a good fit. I was just kind of, I don't know. I was expecting a little bit more of a, a something different like they gave to a lot of the other ones. And Looks not good. just, Looks not good just in the, the tux. same character with a pair of glasses on like they gave to <laughs> <Dex. laughs>
2: <laughs> Looks good. Looks good in the tux. Uh, Darren, did you have anything you wanted to say about any of the characters or Clay, whoever, if you have something you want to say about the characters that we haven't mentioned?
0: I know I just I, I'm a big fan of, of Brooks particularly Brooks's sort of scenery chewing stuff and it's interesting you mentioned earlier on that like it's weird how they cast Cisco uh, how they cast Brooks as Cisco given that like Cisco's meant to be this deeply troubled introverted relatively quiet individual and Brooks is like feed me um I demand scenery and sacrifice um and there's there's an interesting thing there because like that's what I think the fourth season works so well because it allows Brooks to be Brooks, not just in obviously letting him shave his hair and, and have the goatee and stuff. But there's a sense after the fourth season that they begin leaning into Brooks's performance style. And many of like the big episodes coming up that focus on Sisko, um like Far Beyond the Stars, obviously, or, or like in The Pale Moonlight, or even Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, all hinge on like Brooks's performance style, which is like completely unleashed. And that sort of happens around the fourth season. The fourth season is where you really get to see Brooks going all in. And I actually really like that because Brooks, for me, is always halfway between like the classically trained Shakespearean actor of Patrick Stewart, who is probably like the best or at worst second best actor in the franchise history, and William Shatner, who I realize is an acquired taste, but who I absolutely adore. I I kind of love that. Oh, I
1: was just going to say, I think Brooks... Un- Unleashed is way more over the top than William Shatner ever was. <laughs> yes, I'd agree with that. I think they should replace the communicator click with just a, a track of him going, blah! Because <laughs> he loves to do that. <laughs> just do randomly think, going wild. Do you think like? Do you think he waits, and he's like, so are you, you're coming in on the close-up? Tell the guy on the boom mic maybe to back off just a hair. It's going to get loud.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, just- he's, a, he's a trained opera singer, isn't he? Uh, he is, yeah. He's, he's, he's an, opera. He's an opera.
1: opera singer, yeah. That's interesting.
2: I mean, his his performances to me are... Brooks, to me, has actually shown himself across the course of the series to be a better director than he is an actor. His directed episodes are actually standouts for mm. directing choices, and I can kind of understand that. I feel like he, he, he became an actor, but it's really not really what he's all that great at. He's He's fine at it, and it's weird that he can... He's a man of such extremes. He does the incredibly high energy stuff, but when he has to, when they're like, listen, Avery, you got to really pull in like fire in the gut Cisco here, like smoldering uh, Cisco, do that. And he's really good at that too. So it's this weird middle ground where when he's in the middle, he will kind of have these have these weird Yelps mixed in with stuff. And you're like, well, you don't really need to play it this way. Like you're just kind of doing a normal thing. And it, it, he's he's a man of extremes. That would be my description.
1: Yeah, I think he um you know, where where I said he's more over the top than Shatner ever was, I think the difference is that he has a lot more of a, a, a tighter lid on that stuff than Shatner did. Shatner Shatner went from zero to silly pretty easily. Um but Brooks it works better for him, I think, because he keeps it under wraps most of the time. So when he does get to do that stuff, it does it has a little bit more uh more weight to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's-
0: I think one of my favourite my my favourite Brooks moments tend to be moments that are almost incongruous in terms of like I love this performance I love all the big episodes focusing on him but it's little things like for example Dramatis Personae back in the first season which is also the episode that gave us Sexy Kira I think we can safely credit it with that like seven years of Sexy Kira come down to Dramatis Personae but the (laughs) the moment where like Sisko is wrestling with a dude in ops and throws him into one of those pits and then having done that proceeds to like vault over the pit into it like I'm not done yet uh, which is one of those great Brooks moments um, which I absolutely adore and you're right I think that this episode works so well because it all builds that fantastic monologue about this completely insane plan because you know I'm, I'm not I'm not a geologist but I'm fairly sure that the earth's surface doesn't actually shrink like a balloon yeah. um, but it's like I, I feel like I can go with it because Brooks is just like just I'm watching it it's just transfixed it's and, going hey, into my hey brain Hey
2: scientists it's called, it's called magma when it's under the crust you fucking idiots it's not lava pool. <laughs> I
0: could I could point to a
1: specific. That's your uh, issue. I could point to a very specific legendary comic book illustrator who might have have a different appointment. Oh opinion well, okay. on that. <laughs> but I won't name names here. No safe spaces. And no, no kneel by knife. No. I mean, um, I think that the the
0: <laughs> the, the, knife,
2: sorry. the plot to me feels very uh, bondy. I guess this will just be a segue into the sort of ending. I think that the ending scenes, if the entire episode had been the ending scenes where they're all in a group together at the very end, like on a single set doing these things, I would have really appreciated that was the that was the bondiness aspect of it there, and I really enjoyed the subverting expectations Uh, that's on my mind now because I just watched The Last Jedi for the first time but Mm. subverting expectations they did that at the end and it was very satisfying so do you guys agree did you like the homaginess of the early goings or would you have liked that little subverting to have gone the whole way through or do you think that the subverting is what causes the plot to hinge and that's how you have to resolve it I would have liked to have had a little bit more less homagey and more sort of playing with the ideas early on and I, I didn't really get that
1: well You know, I I think... um, Okay, let's put it this way. Uh, Mozart was very famous for for writing um, variations on a theme, right? And that stuff really only works when you know what the original version is, right? So, you know, you would have the original version and then Mozart had like four different versions that he would just kind of change stuff and invert it and all this kind of stuff. And I think that kind of goes that's kind of how these things need to go a little bit, where before you can really start inverting it, you need to uh, kind of play with it, play within the universe a little bit first. Um, play fair. Play yeah, by the rules. I think, yeah, I think the same thing goes with art. You know, it's, it's people who are really... Um, uh uh expressionist or very uh, abstract painters like you know your Picasso's and whatnot, those guys could paint the fuck out of a realistic portrait. Like those guys have, have knew you ever what they seen were. Pica- doing.
2: That blew my mind. There was this thing on Reddit that showed like the eras of Picasso. Yeah. And his early stuff is photorealistic realistic yeah. uh, portraits. It's like mm-hmm. astounding to see what he started as. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the reason why those guys were so good at that stuff is because they knew what they were deconstructing they were fully versed in what they were deconstructing. And so I've always felt like in order to do that in a in the most honest way re- regardless of what medium you're working in, you kind of have to be knowledgeable of the world first. And if you're if you're if you're something like Star Trek where you're playing in a different sandbox, I think it's totally fair play to to spend maybe 10 minutes or however getting you into the vibe of the James Bond world. And every all the trappings of it before you start, uh, you know, putting little twists on it,
0: Darren. I would actually, I'd agree with that almost yeah. entirely. And I think it's interesting you should mention The Last Jedi because I don't want to derail the podcast because mentioning The Last Jedi anywhere is going to derail everything. I'm going to bring but it one up at the, the end. That, <laughs> <laughs> one, yeah, just, just to stir it, just to stir it. But one of the things I really like about, like I, I'm on the fence about The Last Jedi. I think it, I think it's ambitious. I like its ideas. I'm not so keen on a lot of the execution. and I think, But I think it's interesting. I think it's worthy. And one of the things that I like about The Last Jedi is I think it only really works... If it works at all because it follows The Force Awakens. Because The Force Awakens is such a conventional, safe, forward straight up this is a Star Wars film and then you watch The Last Jedi afterwards and it sort of plays with that stuff now I know obviously you could just watch the original trilogy and you'd understand that but I think the two of them together as a duology work rather well so I I would agree with Clay that like to get the second half of Armand Bashir and the second half of Arman Bashir is amazing you kind of have to spend a little time in at the start particularly for like and I, I wonder. This is something I'm curious about because you guys are both Americans. Like and you sort of you mentioned your enthusiasm for Bond. It's like you guys were like, you know, maybe a, maybe a seven, maybe a three. Like is Bond popular over there? Or, and would he have been as popular in the 90s over there for people who weren't like into films as he is obviously in the UK and Ireland where he's like a big deal, particularly in, in the 90s when he was an Irishman?
1: Um, you know, honestly, I don't know. Uh, I I couldn't tell you the uh, the U.S. response to Bond in general. It, it's it seems fairly positive. Like I know a lot of people who are really into it. Um, as far as people of our generation, it's probably I would say most people our age probably got more into it once Daniel Craig showed up because by the time by that point it was so you know played out and parodied that I feel like it needed that hard reset to get a new generation of people into it. Um, and I personally the the main reason I said seven is because I I do enjoy James Bond. I I love James Bond movies generally, uh, but I feel like um James Bond is has always been better up until Casino Royale for me. James Bond has always been better as a concept than actually as a movie, uh, because they're generally they're generally way too long, um, and they're generally not as (laughs) uh exciting as i kind of hope they were at least when i was younger. Yeah. Um we have a um, I love Goldeneye. I love Goldeneye. Uh i don't like really any of the other Pierce Brosnan ones, but um and
0: i And that's I, also fair.
1: Yeah, and i like and there's so many of them. Like there's there's like fucking 25 of them. There's there's <laughs> uh, there's so many that i don't even know some of them. Like some every now and then yeah. one will pop up and i'll be like i've never even heard of that one. Um <laughs> And I'd say like everybody, everybody who's been a Bond gets has like at least one movie that was good to really good, uh, but that's not a great average across 25 <laughs> films. So it's interesting. I, I I can I I can understand why it's a much bigger cultural thing uh, in in the UK and in Ireland. Um, but yeah, I think people here generally enjoy them. But I don't know if. It's as widespread a phenomenon as it is elsewhere.
2: I think over here with Bond, you either like Bond or you don't. There are no yeah. semi-casual Bond fans who are like, oh, okay. new Bond film is out. I'll, I'll go check that out. That that doesn't exist. The people who go to see Bond films over here have seen all the Bond films, I feel oh, like. Okay. Um, I, have,
1: I have a friend of mine who uh, just because... She does this for some reason. She feels the need to do this. She'll she'll tackle series of movies and then she will app. She <laughs> has to watch all of them. Like recently, she was like, "I'm going to. W- I'm watching all the Batman movies. Let me know what order I should do." And I'm like, "All right, y- your funeral." But uh, she recently did James Bond, and it took her like three years to do it <laughs> because she got about halfway through <laughs> and she was like, "Clay, every one of these movies are exactly the same. They're two hours <laughs> long. They're so boring." <laughs> When are these (laughs) supposed to get good? And and, and it was the kind of thing where it was like, yeah, every now and then one would pop up. She'd be like, yeah, it was pretty good. But generally it was just, oh, (laughs) shit, tonight I have to watch a goddamn James Bond movie.
2: You know, some people say now there's like TVs are being played as movies. The Bond films are a TV series that was accidentally made into a movie.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's because they are very formulaic they're very adventure of the week style they're very sort of like they're very contained but they each have a very familiar formula and you can, you're you right when you point out that like all of them are interchangeable like you can point out that for example The Spy You Loved Me is a straight up remake of uh, You Only Live Twice to give an example and like the, the Roger Moore Bond movies are particularly egregious um, because they go from they do the standard Bond formula while also being what's popular at the moment yeah. so it's like space movies are popular so yeah. let's send Bond into space Silicon Valley's popular at the moment so let's have him go to Silicon Valley I will say um, it, I will say.
1: however one of those ones that were like in that dead zone of the middle that I didn't know existed I did watch uh, I can't remember the name of it because all the names are like you know two ticks away from being the same thing um, it's the, <laughs> the one something to me yeah it's the Roger Moore movie where he has to protect it takes place in like the Alps and there's like skiing and he has to protect
0: like oh, this figure it's skater for your or something eyes only. That it's movie, only. It's, that that's movie the is great. Moore, it's the best Roger Moore Bond film because it's the only one where he has that actual character. And also where he doesn't creep on the underage girl. Yeah, Which also it, helps. I
1: never hear that movie talked about, and it's it's the best yeah. of the Roger Moore movies. I, I know people it's really love. It's the smallest one. Yeah, people really love. Um, what is it? Uh,
0: the Spy Who Loved Me.
1: Nope, I was thinking of the. Fuck. Uh, Paul McCartney. Live and Let Die. Oh, uh,
0: Live and Let Die. Um,
1: people really like that one. I, Bond. I never really liked that movie. It's okay. It's got some good stuff, but For Your Eyes Only was, I thought, legit good.
0: Bond? Yeah, no, I, I would be a big fan of For Your Eyes Only. That would be my favorite of the more Bond films, particularly because it has Julian Glover playing this wonderful low-key villain, Christoph, whose right. deal is basically that he likes selling stuff. That's it. And, That's uh, his deal. Charles
1: Charles dances in it as well, in a small part.
0: Yes, as a dune buggy driver. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So we thanks everyone somewhere. for joining us on the Pensky File James Bond podcast. Well, do we have any? That's
2: why I don't call my the show a, a pun of Star Trek. I'm not like Trekonomics or Trekadilly doodad or anything like that. It's just the fucking penske podcast here because we talk about everything. Um, do we have anything else we want to talk about before final thoughts? Does anyone have anything they want to say about this actual episode?
0: Uh, Just very briefly, Garrick's characterization in here I absolutely love because there's this sense that, like, when, because Bashir is entirely right that Garrick is offended by this portrayal of his th- his work and the job that he does and like what he did for a living and one of the interesting things about Garrick and we talked about this when we talked about the Dia's cast and Probable Cause is that Garrick over the course of the show is somebody who is changed by the Federation and by being around people like Bashir even though he doesn't want to be and there's that wonderful conversation in The Way of the Warrior about root beer and how insidious it is and how it gets inside you and it changes you and one of the things that I really love is the sequence where they have the big shouting match in the cavern where Garrick like turns to Bashir and says, "You're a man who dreams about being a hero because you know deep down that you're not." Let me just say the holosuite isn't the only thing that's projecting at that moment in time, because um, that's 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 got nothing to do with Bashir. Bashir is a hero through and through. Bashir has always been a hero. It's consistent in his characterization, but it's Garrick. Uh, who has basically always been the coward? Who's always been nervous? Who's always been scared? Who's always been ashamed of what he is? And there's this moment where he's confronted with this idea of Bashir role playing as the thing that he's been for all his life, and not being a coward, and not being sort of a sniveling wreck. And he's sort of offended by that, which I really, really like. I think that's a really great characterization.
2: Clay, did you uh, did you have any thoughts about Garrick? Uh, I, I agree with everything Darren was saying, but did, did you have any thoughts about Garrick's ending or where Garrick stands at this point?
1: No, I, th- I thought he was great. Um, I liked him because he was kind of the one, uh, on, on top of what Darren was saying, he was also the device to voice the, uh, discussions about how kind of silly the James Bond stuff is. Yeah. Which I think was done in a, in a, in a more interesting way than if they had not had somebody there to do that. And they didn't do it in a super obvious way. Like it was still a, um, character appropriate way it wasn't just someone else there being like well this is kind of dumb don't you think isn't it kind of weird you know it's the, <laughs> yeah, the way right. they do it a lot in modern stuff now where it's like just someone there who's like who says isn't it kind of weird that blank and blank happens but the never Senec, blank yeah. you know that kind of thing um but yeah uh, I, I, thought, uh, I liked his um he has some really good lines in this i think when bashir's
2: yeah. like take down your hair and garrick's like i'm knowing more about your fantasy life yeah. than i ever really <laughs> needed to learn i,
0: I i've I particularly love when he wakes up in this like Himalayan paradise and the first line he utters is another decorator's nightmare, (laughs) Um, which is just so perfectly (laughs) garrick. I will say that I think he's a little bit
1: underutilized because he just sort of, yeah, he's just sort of there to kind of let Bashir verbalize what he's thinking and to counterpoint and point out the, uh, the absurdity of some of the tropes. Um, And there I mean there are some scenes where he's there, but you just kind of forget he's even in them because you know They don't cut to him very often
2: question Would you if I were to if I were to rewrite this script? I think one thing I would do if it, if it gave me a half hour to rewrite it. I would do one small change Let me know what you think about this. I feel this is an episode that would have greatly benefited from one of the cliche Bashir and Garrick are having lunch A cold opens Would you agree or is that too far? Mmm, I could I could see that Um I think this all comes down to my, I I wish there was just a little bit more there. Garrick is good at the end. I just wish they had introduced that idea a little bit earlier to make it seem like it was a cohesive thread that ran throughout the entire episode. And it doesn't really feel that way at this point.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the only issue with that is possibly timing-wise, because right. you'd have to then cut from cut them from having the lunch together. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, you'd have to have, like, from them having lunch together to Bashir having apparently gone off on his own to being the holosuite to Garrick being there as well. You know,
1: I, it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if that scene exists, uh, like in the original version of the script, now that you say it, because his Garrick's uh, appearance in the holodeck is so just random... That it wouldn't surprise me if there was a scene where they were having some sort of, you know, lunch or whatever. And then Bashir was like, uh, I got to go. I have to go do, <laughs> do this thing. thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't, don't, don't knock don't on in. my door. I need to learn. how don't to. Don't look re- at me. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And then, um, you know, Garrick is then interested in, in what's going on. What's going on. It, it wouldn't surprise yeah.
0: me. <laughs> so that's actually a very plausible idea. <laughs>
2: We don't need to talk about this too much longer. We're going to wrap this up. But we didn't talk at all about the Ferengi, Odo, and Eddington working on the outside. Is there anything to say about these guys? Good to see Eddington again. Um, I like the bit of <laughs> Rom's business where he's using, like, spatulas and yes. uh, drains to, like, fix up Quark's thing. <laughs> also, why are the Hollow Suites only breaking even for Quark? I how, know. how does that work?
1: Yeah, you would think that would be, like, the, the highest uh, money-making I, thing.
0: I have a theory. Um, and my theory is this. There's a point later on in the show where Quark decides to use one of the holosuites to run a bar that's open twenty four seven. So why would you pay for food and beverage in the Holo, in the in Quark's when you could just go up, pay for the holosuite for an hour, and eat whatever the hell you want?
1: Is I think that Quark's like,
0: business practices. Would are that probably be real a food, dutty.
1: though? I mean, doesn't that do you Can walk you, out hungry? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Does it just disappear afterwards? Well, it assumes it has to be replicated.
1: If it were me, I would probably, yeah, I would probably use the holodeck to just go in like, eat Chinese food for 24 hours straight. And then be able to walk out and be like, well, that was satisfying, but not actually, didn't actually affect me at all.
2: Hey, is that, you saying the Suite is only invented to make that joke
1: about you eat Chinese food and you're hungry three minutes later thing possible in the real world? Is that, is that what you're telling me? No, you know, it's like, I, I would definitely be the guy where it's like, yeah, everybody else is joking about using the holodeck for some weird sex thing. And I'd be like, man, I just want to eat like two pizzas, like full, straight through. <laughs> Have a chocolate shake afterwards and like a
0: box of donuts and not feel gross afterwards. Mundane utility. It's like the least satisfying thing. It'd be great if that's what Garrick walked in on, especially your binge eating. I knew. Would yeah, be a yeah. very different episode. Or, I knew or, you'd or, like, be in here <laughs> eating a pie. I thought it was
2: something else, but this is exactly what you're in here yeah, doing. Yeah, or
1: it would be something like I would be. I would go into the holodeck, and then if somebody came in, it would be. An exact, It would not be any different. It would just be like my normal quarters. And they'd be like, what the hell? Why are you even using this? And, and I would say, I, honestly, I just, I, just, I just want people to shut the hell up for like 20 minutes. I just want <laughs> to be just,
2: alone. You tell them you wanted to get away <laughs> and it's just like your real world in the Hall uh, the of Suite. Yeah, All right, exactly. we're done. We're done with this episode. We're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. Me, Darren, and Clay are going to come back. We're going to read some patron thoughts, give our final thoughts, and then we will call it a day. And what is it you understand, Mr. Bashir. That you should have killed me when you had the chance. I agree. But then again, I suppose it wouldn't
1: be very heroic. I, on the other hand, have no pretensions about the idea of being a hero. Wait.
2: Maybe I'm tired of being a hero. Maybe I've thought over what you've said and decided that... You're absolutely right. About what?
0: Everything. The decadence of the world, the need for order.
2: The more I think about it, the more I realize that your way may be the only way. All right, so patron thoughts. If you support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file, you get to leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes. We read them on the podcast. Holly McLaughlin says... TNG sold us on the idea that transporters are far and away the safest transportation possible. A transporter accident ought to be such a crazily unlikely occurrence that nobody has a clue how to fix it. They should be frantically studying what to do because none of them have ever done it before and really have no idea where to start. It doesn't make remember
1: s- in the first Star Trek movie where the when the guy that died, Vulcan got vaporized yeah. by the transporter. <laughs> that was
2: very te- uh, that was very motion picture Star Trek right there. And Kirk was just kind of yeah. moping around after killing that guy for an hour. Um, it doesn't make sense to me that the computer doesn't just pull their likenesses on the holodeck characters, but not any other aspect of their stored brainwaves. This one is cheesy and silly, but has the redeeming element of it being fun to watch the actors playing new characters as an ensemble. Stephen Cobb says, similar to Little Green Men, sabotage uh, ship acts as a catalyst for putting the characters into a setting in Earth's past. Both have high stakes and the heroes in both need outside help to get back to home slash reality. That said, DS9 had been on the air long enough to earn a fantasy episode, and this one was well done and acted, and the music was spot on. Oh, well, yeah, we haven't talked about the music. I'm just going to say music is good to me in a Star Trek episode if I notice it, and I noticed it here.
1: Yeah, music was great. Yeah, I like the music a lot. Uh,
2: this was the second fantasy episode of the season. Zam Nuclear Wessel says... Indicative of DS9, the holodeck episodes are almost always about the holodeck making things better or saving the situation. Rather than creating the problem, here's the solution. In- here, it's the solution. Interesting that Eddington and Odo trying to fix things from the outside uh, the game is almost exactly like pre-Eddington and Odo doing the same back in Move Along Home. Joint Mango says, Arman Bashir, Eddington is the worst Canadian ever. Apart from that, this episode is bomb. Kiss the girl, get the key. They never taught me that at the Obsidian Order. Kyle Barrett says, I love this episode. Sure, it all comes down to due to a silly situation with the station essentially wiping its cookies in order to store the crew's consciousness after yet another destabilized warp core, but once the clunky explanation is out of the way, it's so much fun. I've been a big James Bond fan since before I was a Star Trek fan, so it's cool to see the franchise merge like this, with the episode poking fun at the Bond tropes just as much lovingly as it plays into them. It's also nice to see Bashir play Baccarat because it's the Bond's game of choice in the books, but we really get to see it in the movies only four times by my counting. Kyle's a big uh, Bond fan. Maybe it's just my weird obsession with Bashir and O'Brien's relationship, but I've always thought it would be interesting to have the holodeck place O'Brien into one of the female roles, maybe as Honeybear, and Bashir would have to woo him like um, he does with Dax in this episode. What, that could have been fun. I
0: mean, to be fair, the scene between Falcon and Bashir, where Falcon gently caresses Bashir's face with the gun <laughs> before pressing it under his chin lovingly... Um it, I, I feel like you're not too far off the idea of the bed turning around and, and Colomini lying in it going, oh. <laughs> events in the
2: holodeck could have somehow paralleled events on the station so characters other than Garrett could have learned something from the experience, but I don't really care. It's incredibly entertaining as it is. It's one of my favorite episodes of the show. Neil Brennan says, Armand Bashir, a stupid amount of fun. Two more. Matthew Ross says, I really like this homage of James Bond, even down to the wah-wah trumpet blasts. Humorous, but another ship in the bottle, TNG, bad holodeck, and transport of magic episode. And here's an odd thought. Whose holodeck is it? Quarks? The stations? And I see suddenly the tech expertise of Odo and Eddington come forth. When did neural energy come separately? Oh, yeah, this episode only. ROM's tech-speak and spatula technology is clearly ahead of anything else in the known universe. As for the silliness inside the closed world, the over-the-top characterizations and ridiculous names, Galore, are a nice Bond references, but not DS9. They say they said let's have a holodeck issue with a Bond theme and make Garrick the real-world spy comparison. Or they just needed something to fill in the schedule. Regardless, no real stakes and pure silliness make it just a fun, fair episode. Bashir does not... So
1: Go ahead. No, uh, no. Finish, finish what you get. Finish the thing. Well, his lessons. Bashir does not return, and Latinum is forever. So, uh, Darren, as as a James Bond aficionado, who makes a less believable scientist, uh, Dax or Denise Richards?
0: Well, I mean, Dax doesn't wear hot pants. I feel, I feel like that maybe gives her a bit of an advantage here. Um, That's fair. Sad- sadly, though, Bashir never gets to utter the line. Christmas only comes once a year Yo, which that is, is like me. my that, that's my my like you know the way that like you have like your fantasy casting thresholds which is like you have to if you want to check if an actor will work in a role you need to put them in both the best moment that the character has and the worst moment and see yeah. how they'll work and like the the bond test that every actor fails is delivering that line I thought Christmas only comes once a year without it seeming like a line from a, a knowing line from a marvel film and like Donald yeah. Leason is the only actor I can possibly imagine delivering I thought Christmas only comes once a year and swinging a glass of champagne while looking like an absolute twat uh, and doing like, it convincingly.
1: I feel like that line is like, is like in the box where they keep the Glen Gary <laughs> leads of, uh, of James Bond lines, where it's like a secret box where it's like we have this line. That we've been waiting to use for 60 years and we can only use it once we have to choose the right time
0: to use Christmas only comes once a
2: year <laughs> I think when I saw that movie I was I think probably he's attempting
0: re-entry is quite an, is another one of those That's good I think one too. yeah
2: I think I was when I saw that movie I was like with my grandmother I would think too and I was I must have been just like Grammy what, is, what does that mean I, I, there's definitely a, a learning experience for young young Wes last comment mm-hmm. here Ike J says this episode is interesting in that it shows how Star Trek is comfortable enough with its own writing to create stories that are naturally colorblind. Worf, Bashir, and Cisco all feel very natural in a genre where race has historically been handled poorly. A fun exercise for me is updating the episode for today's cultural climate. You could probably make Dax the villain and play off Bashir and Dax's history. It would give further reason as to why he would destroy the world for her. And O'Brien, the scientist that Bashir seduces, since in today's era, you can toe the line between bromance and romance. Everyone wants to see Bashir and O'Brien fuck, but apparently
1: it's not going to happen, guys. Get over it. Guys, go on the internet, search that, and I'm sure it will come up. Anyway. And if it doesn't... Someone
0: will do it soon. (laughs) If it it doesn't, your Google search has
1: been... Your parents have been fiddling
2: with your search results. So go in and turn off the parental controls and you'll be able to
0: find it. There's another Patreon
1: threshold for you guys, I think. (laughs) For some reason, popular culture slash fiction is like a tulpa. If enough, uh, enough people think of it, it magically appears. So we may have just willed that into existence by talking about it. All right. So our ratings, one
2: to five scale. Clay, you want to go first?
1: Yeah, um... I'm going to go four, I think. Yeah, that feels right. Because it's, it's better than average. Uh, I don't know if it would be the first on my list to show people, but I feel like it's 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 definitely a more enjoyable episode than, uh, uh, than some of the other ones I've seen.
2: Did you like it more than Little Green Men, which is kind of a
1: similar episode? Mm, yes, I did. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I feel like the story is a little bit cleaner in this one. Uh, there's more to there's, do. Yeah, there's more to do, and there's less like third act. Everybody shuffle around because we can't really figure out what else to do. And uh, Odo doesn't show up in this one as like uh, secretly transformed into odd job or something. <laughs> yeah, B- B- Bashir or O'Brien throws his hat, and
2: o- Odo is the hat or something. Darren, what yeah, are you going to give this one? Be great
0: this would be a five for me. This would be like one of my favourite episodes of Star Trek ever although that's absolutely no surprise given that I opened with the idea that was an underrated masterpiece. Uh, but it is and I, I think it's it's a fantastic piece of Star Trek a fantastic piece of television a fantastic piece of Deep Space Nine a wonderful character study a wonderful piece of genre work and we didn't actually talk about it much uh, and I know that this is not the time to introduce it but I also really like Ronald D. Moore as a comedy writer. He, you, We talk a lot about how he changed Star Trek and he sort of introduced this sort of nuance and depth and darkness but Moore for my money is one of the better com- Comedy writers in the franchise he also wrote for example his first the first script he was supposed to write for the show was house of quark which is also similarly underrated um, he ended up writing the search part one because i think uh, robert ewood wolf went, went off on his honeymoon and then he also later on the third season he writes looking for mock in all the wrong places which i think is the yeah. only time the phrase <laughs> the only time the phrase star trek sex comedy uh, can be uttered without elucidating a shudder uh, which i really like as well so i, I really love our man
2: I'm going to give it a four as well. Um, I really enjoy it. It's, a, it's an above-average episode. I'm sure if I loved Bond, I would like the episode a little bit more than I do. But as I, as it stands, I like it as like a technical achievement for the show. I think that the actors have a lot of fun with it. The scenes where they're all together are really great. The script is kind of fun. Um, it is just a... It's a very solid episode of the show. Um, it's enjoyable at this point. It's it's something that uh, you can easily watch and sort of relax with. If you love Bond, you're going to love that episode.
1: Do... um. The rest of the episodes uh, of the se- of this season, are they more normal Deep Space Nine episodes for the most part? Or do they do any of these, like, side quests, kind of light episodes? We have, the reason I ask that yeah. is because I feel like on another show, having Little Green Men and this one so close together would feel like they're running out of ideas. We get back to... There's a big two-parter
2: coming up Okay, for us, which are the next two You know what I mean, episodes. though? It's like... Yeah.
1: I do. It's like they're running out of stuff to do, so they got to, you know, get off the station, but they can't get off the station because that's the whole point of the show. Well, that was, so.
2: that was Stephen Cobb's point is like, you you just did this. Like, isn't it too yeah. soon to do this again? I would kind of agree with that. Um, you know, the production line of TV makes it difficult, but I, I could understand. If I was watching this in real time, I think that might be a concern of mine at this point. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. If you wanted to uh, leave your comments, it's patreon.com slash the Penske file. Anyway, you can check out the social media. All the links will be in the video description. Facebook, Twitter, Discord, all that stuff. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. You want to support the show. That's the best way to do it. If you don't want to do uh, the Patreon, you can just rate us on iTunes. It's much appreciated. We're almost at 50 reviews. If we get to 50, I'll be very, very happy. It will make my day. It's easy to do it on your phone. Just go to the podcast app on your iPhone and... uh, rate the show that's all there is to it it is the internet currency it means nothing to you it's free just give it away give it to me that's all we need pretend i am your bashir and you are my o'brien and just give it to me baby um let's see here so what do i want I to do i
0: don't see that thank you very much
2: <laughs> just imagine bashir rating on itunes as they're as they're making love and that'll be everything that you need it to be oh boy uh let's see so that's it now as always we give a shout out to this
0: five stars,
2: eh? <laughs> we give a shout out to the Captain Latier patrons: Stephen Cobb, Nathan Elliott, Michael Pond, Matthew Cutler, Will Yates, Matt Flores, Kim, Luc- Samuel Custer, Santos Gonzalez, Robert Cummins, Andrew Kierlo- Cherlog, sorry, Spinobi, Russ Graham, Eric Johnson, Dexter Sebastiani, Neil Brennan, Bradley Killens, Jay Stanley, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Ben Douglas, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mango, and Tark Latif. Thank you guys very much. You make the show possible. We only do DS9 because of you. That's about it. Um, my non sequitur and check out Darren's stuff. Darren's Twitter will be here. Check out Clay's stuff as always. Uh, I'm just going to say, I saw the last Jedi and the infinity war. And it's Mm. clearer to me than ever that star Wars has kind of lost its way. And I didn't even really hate. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go up here and rant about the last Jedi last Jedi bored me and watching infinity wars in context with it showed where Star Wars has kind of gone wrong. That's all I'm going to say for my sort of thing. I know we're covering them at some point, uh, but if people wanted my thoughts about those, and that's it. Infinity War was fun to watch, and The Last Jedi was not fun to watch. <laughs> that's the way I would describe it. I couldn't believe that there were 40 minutes left in The Last Jedi when I checked the thing after Snoke, spoiler, Snoke dies. Yeah, And I was like, are you kidding me? <clears throat> 40 minutes, I'm, I'm over this movie. What is happening? Why is there 40 more minutes? And there they were.
1: I'll I'll give you the best summation of Last Jedi I was ever witness to, which was uh, I went to see it with with Dave, our Star Wars fellow Star Wars podcast uh, host, and his two sons. And his younger son uh, checked out about halfway th- about half an hour in, and then uh, for the last twenty minutes, he kept asking both of us when it was going to be over. Yeah, and <laughs> then begging. as soon as it said uh, "written and directed by Ryan Johnson," he just went, "Yes."
2: <laughs> <laughs> star wars you guys can look forward to our coverage about that darren thank you very much for coming on
0: no worries my pleasure thanks for having me guys clay thank you very much yeah thank you for
1: having me
2: guys check out darren and clay's stuff check them out on twitter um, and all that jazz and otherwise we'll be back with our next episode which i believe is Homefront is the next one and then paradise lost the two-parter so guys thank you very much for supporting thank you for listening and we'll see you next time